Chapter 5, Part 1 of Zone Policeman 88. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zone Policeman 88, A Close-Range Study of the Panama Canal and Its Workers, by Harry A. Frank. Chapter 5, Part 1. Police headquarters presented an unusual air of preoccupation next morning. In the corner office, the telephone rang often and imperatively. Several times erect figures in khaki and broad Texas hats flashed by the doorway. The drone of earnest conference sounded a few minutes, and the figures flashed as suddenly out again into the world. In the inner office, I glanced once more in review through the rules and regulations. The zone, too, was now familiar ground, and as for the third requirement for a policeman, to know the zone residence by sight, a strange face brought me to a start of surprise, unless it beamed above the guard that shouted, Tourist. Now all I needed was a few hours of conference and explanation on the duties, rights, and privileges of policemen, and that, of course, would come as soon as leisure again settled down over headquarters. Musing which I was suddenly startled to my feet by the captain appearing in the doorway. Catch the next train to Balboa, he said. You've got four minutes. You'll find Lieutenant Long on board. Here are the people to look out for. He thrust into my hands a slip of paper. From another direction there was tossed at me a new brass check, and first-class private, police badge number 88, and I was racing down through Ancon. In the meadow below the Travoli, I risked time to glance at the piece of paper. On it were the names of an ex-president and two ministers of a frowsy little South American republic, during whose rule a former president and his henchmen had been brutally murdered by a popular uprising in the very capital itself. In the first-class coach I found Lieutenant Long, towering so far above all his surroundings as to have been easily recognized even had he not been in uniform. Beside him sat Corporal Castillo of the Plain Clothes Squad, a young man of forty, with a high forehead, a stubby black mustache, and a chin that was decisive without being aggressive. Now here's the captain's idea, explained the lieutenant as the train swung away around Ancon Hill. We'll have to take turns mounting guard over them, of course. I'll have to talk Spanish, and nobody will have to look at Castillo more than once to know he was born in some crack in the Andes. Which was one of the lieutenant's jokes, for the corporal, though a Colombian, was as white, sharp-witted, and energetic as any American on the zone. But no one to look at him would suspect that, for French, is it? Frank. Oh, yes. That Frank could speak Spanish. We'll do our best to inflate that impression, and when it comes your turn at guard mount, you can probably let several things of interest drift in at your ears. I left headquarters before the captain had time to explain, I suggested. Oh, said the lieutenant. Well, here it is in a spectacle case, as our friend Kipling would put it. We're on our way to Calabra Island. There are now in quarantine there three men who arrived yesterday from South America. They are members of the party of the murdered president. Today there will arrive, and also be put in hock, the three gents whose names you have there. Now we have a private inside hunch that the three already here have come up particularly and specifically to prepare for the funeral of the three who are arriving, which is no hair off our brows, except it's up to us to see they don't pull off any little stunts of that kind on zone territory. At least this police business was starting well. If this was a sample, it would be a real job. The train had stopped, and we were climbing up the steps of Balboa Police Station, for without the cooperation of the Admiral of the Pacific Fleet, we could not reach Calabra Island. By the way, I suppose you're well armed? 
asked the lieutenant in his high, querulous voice, as we drank a last round of ice water preparatory to setting out again. Um, I've got a fountain pen, I replied. I haven't been a policeman twenty minutes yet, and I was appointed in a hurry. Fine, cried the admiral sarcastically, snatching open the door of a closet beside the desk. With a warm job like this on hand, you know what these South Americans are. With a wink at the lieutenant that was meant also for Castillo, who stood with his felt hat on the back of his head and a faraway look in his eyes. Yeah, mighty dangerous, around mealtime, said the corporal, though at the same time he drew from a hip pocket a worn leather holster containing a revolver and examined it intently. Meanwhile, the admiral had handed me a massive number 88 Colt with holster, a box of cartridges, and a belt that might easily have served as a horse's saddle girth. When I had buckled it on under my coat, the armament felt like a small boy clinging about my waist. We trooped on down a sort of railroad junction with a score of abandoned wooden houses. It was here I had first landed on the zone one blazing Sunday nearly two months before, and tramped away for some miles on a rusty sandy track along a canal already filled with water, till a short jungle path led me into my first zone town. Already that seemed ancient history. The police launch, manned by Negro prisoners, with the admiral in a cushioned armchair at the wheel, was soon scudding away across the sunlit harbor, the breakwater building of the spoil of the Calabra cut on our left, ahead the cluster of small islands being torn to pieces for Uncle Sam's fortifications. The steamer being not yet sighted, we put in at Dallas Island, where the bulky policeman in charge led us to dinner at the ICC Hotel, during which the noonday blasting on the zone came dully across to us. Soon after, we were landing at the cement sidewalk of the island, where I had been a prisoner for a day in January, as my welcome to U.S. territory, and were being greeted by the pocket-edition doctor and the bay-windowed German who had been my wardens on that occasion. We found the conspirators at a table in a corridor of the first-class quarantine station, and the words of Lieutenant Long, they fully looked the part, being of distinctly merciless cut of jib. They were roughly dressed and without collars, convincing proof of some nefarious design, for when the Latin American entitled to wear them leaves off his white collar and his cane, he must be desperate indeed. We braced them at once, marching down upon them as they were murmuring with heads together over a mass of typewritten sheets. The corporal was delegated to inform them in his most urbane and hiligazeco castilian that we were well acquainted with their errand and that we were come to frustrate, by any legitimate means in our power, the consummation of any such project on American territory. When the first paralyzed stare of astonishment that plans I had fancied locked to their own breasts were known to others was somewhat subsided, one of them assumed spokesmanship. In just as courtly and superabundant language, he replied that they were only too well aware of the inadvisability of carrying out any act against its sovereignty on U.S. soil, that so long as they were on American territory, they would conduct themselves in a most circumspect and calaboroso manner. But, he concluded, in the most public street of Panama City, the first time we meet those three dogs, we shall spit in their faces. That's all, not a mass. And the blazing eyes announced all too plainly what he meant by that figure of speech. That was all very well, was our smiling urbane reply. But to be on the safe side, and merely as a matter of custom, we were under the unfortunate necessity of requesting them to submit to the annoyance of having their baggage and persons examined, with a view to discovering what weapons. Como non senores? All the examination you desire. Which was exceedingly kind of them. Whereupon, when the lieutenant had interpreted to me their permission, 
we fell upon them and amid countless expressions of mutual esteem gave them and their baggage such a frisking as befalls a kaifir, leaving a South African diamond mine, and found them armed with a receipt from the quarantine doctor for one pearl-handled Smill and Wilson number 32. Either they really intended to postpone their little fare until they reached Panama, or they had succeeded in concealing their weapons elsewhere. The doctor and his assistant were already being rowed out to the steamer that was to bring the victims. They were to be lodged in a room across the corridor from the conspirators, which corridor it would be our simple duty to patrol with a view to intercepting any exchange of stray lead. We fell to planning such division of the twenty-four hours as should give me the most talkative period. The lieutenant took the trouble further to convince the trio of my total ignorance of Spanish by a distinct and elaborate explanation, in English, of the difference between the words muchacho and muchacha. Then we wandered down past the grimy steerage station to the shore end of the little wharf to await the doctor and our protégés. The ocean breeze swept unhampered across the island. On its rocky shore sounded the dull rumble of waves, for the sea was rolling a bit now. The swelling tide covered, inch by inch, a sandy ridge that connected us with another island, gradually drowning beneath its waters several rusty old hulls. A little rocky wooded isle to the left cut off the future entrance to the canal. Some miles away across the bay on the lower slope of a long hill drowsed the city of Panama in brilliant sunshine, and beyond, the hazy mountainous country stretched southwestward to be lost in the molten horizon. On a distant hill, some Indian was burning off a patch of jungle to plant his corn. Meanwhile, the lieutenant and the corporal had settled some lombroso proposition and fallen to reciting poetry. The former, who was evidently a lover of melancholy, mouth-filling verse, was declaiming the raven to the open sea. I listened in wonder. Was this, then, police talk? I had expected rough, untaught fellows whose conversation at best would be pornographic rather than poetic. My astonishment swelled to the bursting point when the Columbian not only caught up the poem where the lieutenant left off, but topped it off with that peerless translation by Bernard de Venezuelan, beginning, Una fosca media noche, cuando e triste reflexiones, sombre da un rabo, in folio de ovidiados cronicones. And just then the quarantine launch swung around the neighboring island. I tightened my horse belt and dragged the colt around within easy reach, and a moment later the doctor and his bulking understudy stepped ashore, alone. They didn't come said the former. They were not allowed to leave their own country. Hell and damnation, said the lieutenant at length in a calm conversational tone of voice, with the air of a small boy who has been wantonly robbed of a long-promised holiday, but who is determined not to make a scene over it. The corporal seemed indifferent, and stood with a faraway look in his eyes, as if he were already busy with some other plans or worries. But then the corporal was married, as for myself, I had somehow felt from the first that it was too good to be true. Adventure has steadily dogged me all my days. A half hour later we were pitching across the bay toward Ancon Hill, scaled bare on one end by the work of fortification like a Hindu haircut. The water came spitting in board now and then, and dejected silence reigned within the craft. But spirits gradually revived, and before we could make out the details of the wharf, the corporal's hearty, genuine laughter and the lieutenant's rousing cacahata were again drifting across the water. At Balboa, I unburdened myself of my shooting hardware and, catching the labor train, was soon mounting the graveled walk to Ancom Police Station. In the second-story squad room of the bungalow were eight beds, for there were more than enough policemen to go around, and the legal occupant of the bunk I fell asleep in returned from duty at midnight, 
and I transferred to the still warm nest of a man on the graveyard shift. It's custom to put a man in uniform for a while first before assigning him to plainclothes duty, the inspector was saying next morning when I finished the oath of office that had been omitted in the haste of my appointment. But we have waived that in your case because of the knowledge of the zone the census must have given you. Thus casually was I robbed of the opportunity to display my manly form in uniform to tourists of the trains and the Trivoli. Tourists, I say, because the zoners would never have noticed it. But we must all accept the decrees of fate. That was the full extent of the inspector's remarks. No mention whatever of the sundry little points the recruit is anxious to be enlightened upon. In government jobs, one learns those details by experience. For the time being, there was nothing for me to do but to descend to the gumshoe desk in Ancon Station, and sit in a swivel chair opposite Lieutenant Long, waiting for orders. Toward noon, a thought struck me. I swung the telephone around and got the inspector. All my junk is up in Empire yet, I remarked. All right. Tell the deskman down there to make you out a pass. Or, hold the wire. As long as you're going out, there's a prisoner over in Panama that belongs up in Empire. Go over and tell the chief you want Tal Fulano. I worked my way through the fawning, neck-craning, mini-shaded mob of political henchmen and obsequious petitioners into the sacred hushed precincts of Panama Police Headquarters. A pouched spigotti with a sifty eye behind large bowed glasses, vainly striving to exude dignity and wisdom, received me with the oily smirk of the Panamanian officeholder who feels the painful necessity of keeping on outwardly good terms with all Americans. I flashed my badge and mentioned a name. A few moments later there was presented to me a sturdy, if somewhat flabby, young Spaniard, carefully dressed and perfumed. We bowed like lifelong acquaintances, and stepping down to the street, entered a cab. The prisoner, which he was now only a name, was a muscular fellow with whom I should have fared badly in personal combat. I was wholly unarmed and in a foreign land. All these sundry little unexplained points of a policeman's duty were bubbling up within me. When the prisoner turned to remark it was a warm day, should I warn him that anything he said would be used against him? When he ordered the driver to halt before the Panazone, that he might speak to some friends, should I fiercely countermand the order? What was my duty when the friends handed him some money and a package of cigars? Suppose he should start to follow his friends inside to have a drink. But he didn't. We drove languidly on down the avenue and up into Ancon, where I heaved a genuine sigh of relief as we crossed the unmarked street that made my badge good again. The prisoner was soon behind padlocks, and the money and cigars in the station safe. These, and him, and the transfer card, I took again with me into the foreign republic in time for the evening train. But he seemed even more anxious than I to attract no attention, and once an empire requested that we take the shortest and most inconspicuous route to the police station, and my responsibility was soon over. Many were the ZP facts I picked up during the next few days in the swivel chair. The Zone Police Force of 1912 consisted of a chief of police, an assistant chief, two inspectors, four lieutenants, eight sergeants, twenty corporals, 117 first-class policemen, and 116 policemen, West Indian Negroes without exception, though none but an American citizen was fired to any white position, not to mention five clerks at headquarters who are quite worth the mentioning. Policemen wore the same uniform as first-class officers, with khaki-covered helmet instead of Texas hat, and canvas instead of leather leggings, drew one half the pay of a white private, were not eligible for advancement, and with some few notable exceptions, were noted for what they did know and the facility with which they could not learn. One inspector was in charge of detective work, 
and the other an overseer of the uniformed force. Each of the lieutenants was in charge of one-fourth of the zone, with headquarters respectively at Ancon, Empire, Gorgana, and Cristobal, and the substations within these districts, in charge of sergeants, corporals, or experienced privates, according to importance. Years ago, when things were yet in primeval chaos, and the memorable 6th of February, 1904, was still well above the western horizon, there was gathered together for the protection of the newly-born canal strip a band of bad men from our ferocious southwest, warranted to feed on criminals each breakfast time, and in command of a man-eating rough rider. But somehow the bad men seemed unable to transplant to this new and richer soil the banefulness which had thrived so successfully in the land of sagebrush and cactus. The gormandizing promised to be chiefly at the criminal tables, and before long it was noted that the noxious gentlemen were gradually drifting back to their native sand dunes, and the rough riding gave way to a more orderly style of horsemanship. Then, bit by bit, some men, just men, without any qualifying adjective whatever, began to get mixed up in the matter. One after another, army lieutenants were detailed to help the thing along, until by and by they got the right army lieutenant and the right men, and the ZP grew to what it is today. Not the love, perhaps, but the pride of every zoner whose name cannot be found on some old blotter. There are a number of ways of getting on the force. There is the broad and general highway of being appointed in Washington, and shipped down like a nice fresh vegetable in the original package, and delivered just as it left the garden without the pollution of alien hands. Then there's the big, impressive, broad-shouldered fellow with some life and military service behind him, and the papers to prove it, who turns up on the zone and can't help getting on if he takes the trouble to climb to the headquarters. Or there are the special cases, like Marley, for instance. Marley blew in one summer day from some uncharted point of the compass with nothing but his hat and a winning smile on his brassy features, and naturally soon drifted up the thousand stairs. But Marley wasn't exactly of that manly build that takes the chief and the captain by storm, and there were suggestions on his young old face that he had seen perhaps a trifle too much of life. So he wiped the sweat from his brow several times at the third-story landing, only to find as often that the expected vacancy was not yet. Meanwhile, the tropical days slipped idly by, and Marley's stand-in, with the owners of the ICC hotel books, began to strain and threaten to break away, and everything sort of gave up the ghost and died. Everything, that is, except the winning smile. Till one afternoon, with only that asset left, Marley met the department head on the grass-bordered path in front of the Episcopal Chapel, just where the long descent ends and a man begins to regain his tractical mood, and said Marley, Say, look here, Chief. It's a question of eats with me. We can't put this thing off much longer, or... Which is why that evening's train carried Marley, with a police badge and a little flat volume bound in imitation leather in his pocket, out to some substation commander along the line for the corporal in charge to break in and hammer down into that finished product, a zone policeman. Incidentally, Marley also illustrated some months later one of the special ways of getting off the force. It was still simpler. Going on pass to Cologne to spend a little evening, Marley neglected to leave his number 38 behind in the squad room, according to ZP rules which was careless of him. For when his spirits reached that stage where he recognized what sport it would be to see the spigoty policeman of Bottle Alley dance a western can-can, he bethought him of the number 38, which accounts for the fact that the name of Marley can no longer be found on the rolls of the ZP. But all this is sadly anticipating. Obviously, you will say, a force recruited from such a dissimilar source must be a thing of wide and sundry experience. And obviously you are right. 
Could a man catch up the ZP by the slack of the khaki riding breeches and shake out their stories as a giant in need of carfare might shake out their loose change? Then might he retire to some sunny hillside of his own and build him a soundproof house with a swimming pool and a revolving bookcase and a stable of riding horses and cause to be erected on the front lawn a kneeling place where publishers might come and bow down and beat their foreheads on the pavement. End of chapter 5, part 1 Recording by Todd.